Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. introduce uh, you and we have 20 guests tonight. You can just stand there if you'd like. Oh, and Alyssa. And Alyssa. So, um, I'm Sarah, Alyssa. We're very happy to be here today. And um, we've brought with us uh, a few medical students from the University of Toronto. So over the past um, seven weeks or so, we've been running a mindfulness elective for the medical students, and we've had guest speakers come in and talk about how they use mindfulness um, with their patients, as well as in their own life to manage their own stress and, and uh, that kind of thing. So thank you very much for having us, and if you see an unfamiliar face, it's probably one of us. <laughs> thank you for being here. Uh, I used to visit U of T all the time and give talks to classes, but this time I decided, but I <laughs> you have to come here. <laughs> and I think that's what I'm going to do from now on. Um, so welcome. Yeah. Um, I don't know what number in the series of talks this is. Does anybody know? Six. Six, maybe? Seven? Nine? It's got to be more than it's got to be more than six. But, uh, anyways, uh, we're studying a text right now called the Bodhisattva Charyavatara, which is um, a guide to a Bodhisattva's way of life. Uh, it's an eighth-century text written in India uh, by a student there named Shanti Deva, who studied at a college which was the largest. Buddhist university in history um, called Nalanda College. And if Spadina is loud, you can just shut the window. No problem. Uh, two weeks ago, we spoke uh, in depth about working with strong emotions. And as always, whenever the topic of strong emotions comes up, we end up talking about anger. Uh, and then um, I gave some practices for working with strong emotions, uh, stopping, allowing, investigating, and non-identifying. And then last week, we talked about uh, strong moods and negative moods especially. Uh, but at the end of the talk, I think we talk quite a bit about positive moods and letting go of 
uh, too much joy. Um, And uh, um, I also offered two practices last week. Uh, One of them was the lookout tower practice, where you visualize yourself through the day in difficult situations, visualize yourself going up to the top of a lookout tower. I visualize a kind of fire tower in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm climbing up, and Gary Snyder and Allen Ginsberg are up there, and Jack Kerouac. Um, and then you just watch from the lookout tower weather patterns, your own moods. Maybe not their, your, they might not be your moods. And the other practice I asked you to do, uh, I called riding the wave which is when something strong is showing up, it can be anything. It can be anxiety, it can be fear, it can be embarrassment, shame, um, joy, uh, (coughs) anger. Um, Whatever's arising, when it really gets going and the wave, you can see the wave coming, you can feel the wave coming, find a chair, sit down in it, and just ride out the wave. And this is a really powerful practice for making the link between your formal sitting meditation practice and your daily life. And it's especially helpful for those of you who struggle with addiction. To be able to ride out a desire and then come out the other end and know that you actually had some power it didn't have total control over you. So did anybody try these practices? Would anybody like to say <coughs> anything about trying these practices? Did you have your I did pen try up? them. So I how did it go? Um, yeah, I think the... Um, what is the one? The ride the wave one, I guess, is one where, where you sit and you just go through, watch it all go through, so that that was interesting. Um, It took a while to get to the place where I realized that I was, um, that that's what was happening, Hmm. that I'd like made a place for that, Hmm. and I wasn't exactly sitting, but I was washing dishes, and Hmm. then in that I was like, oh, what am I doing here? Hmm. Oh, it's this space, okay, I made this space because this is what's just happened, and I'm right Right. inside of it, and so here I am going through... Uh, these parts and yeah, getting to some other side of being like, okay, it's there. It's different. Like there's, mm. I'm different in the, in where I began with it, and mm. I can't say that I felt any like yeah. I, I didn't react. I didn't feel less reactive mm-hmm. there inside necessarily. Mm-hmm. Maybe I couldn't watch it all the way to the end, but I could watch it to. Well, just that you say that you watched it and you kept washing dishes sounds like a lot less reactive. Yeah, Yeah. compared to the alternatives. Yeah. Thank you, Anne. Somebody else? Anybody else try this this practice? Yeah, Yeah, I did. Um, So... I think I combined... I think you spoke a few weeks ago about not writing emails. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Because <laughs> I, yeah, I had a, I had a moment. I, I actually, I was sitting, and so I stood up and then sat back down. 
so that I felt like I intentionally sat down. Yeah. Um, I received an email that I brought up some mm-hmm. that I wanted to respond to right away. I didn't, I didn't at all. Um, and I, I never actually did anything when I became more sort of rational. For those of you who weren't here, especially the medical students, um, uh, what we've been talking about is how emotions are composites, and they arise in conditions, and those conditions change. So we don't personalize emotions so much. Um, And uh, um, I think what I said is, because I saw it written down somewhere, that... um, uh, emotions are caused by hormones, diet, and emails. <laughs> so you can go back to school and investigate that. Yeah, that's, that's accurate. Thank, thank you. Anybody else try the riding the wave practice? Doug? Yeah, mine was fairly banal. Um, my, uh, I ate less donuts. Where I work, there, on one of the ways I have to walk, there, it's almost like a queue to go and buy fast food, yeah. which I, I did habitually for a very long time until I became aware of it. And I think the insight for me was not only is the desire false, it's there's the habit of response. Mm-hmm. And it struck me that it's a habit yeah. as much as anything. Yeah. There's no genuine desire. Mm-hmm. There's just a habit of habituated behavior. Mm-hmm. But you're convinced when it's happening that it's genuine desire. Uh, it's a story. Yeah. <clears throat> so the other thing we talked about last week, just to review, is that a mood only hangs around when you inject stories into it. And so the purpose of the riding the wave practice is you sit down and you don't inject the stories that lead to actions when you're caught in that mood. So less donuts, in other words. I I witnessed this practice. Karina and I have been trying to do this practice. So um, uh, as most of you know, we had a baby two two and a half weeks ago. So... um, uh, Karina's mother has come to live with us for a month, which is actually inc- mostly incredible. Um, and uh, Karina's mom was a nurse. She's retired now. Um, so she, just like everything in our house is folded so well. <laughs> and it's, it's incredible um, h- how wonderful she's been. Um, through the pregnancy, one of the things Karina's done through the whole pregnancy is uh, pottery. Uh, as many of you know, Joni over there is a master potter. And so Karina's been studying pot- pottery and clay with Joni, uh, starting with pinch pots and making different things. So during the pregnancy, Karina had this idea that she wanted to work on one piece throughout the pregnancy, and it was going to be a vase in the shape of a heart, like, like a, a, an anatomical heart. So it was going to kind of open up and then have these ventricles. And, you know, she was already planning on what from the garden she was going to put in there. So anyway, she's been working on this for months. And then her mother thought it would be really good to clean up the table where the clay happened. So she picked up the pot that she was not allowed into the room. But she went in and she picked up the pot by the ventricle and broke it off. That Karina had been working on for months. So she came to me 
kind of really upset, saying, I, I think maybe I should work on it tonight and fix it for her before I tell her. What should I do? I said, don't tell her tonight. <laughs> so the next morning, um, the next morning, uh, uh, I could hear Karina's mom downstairs in Karina's, the room where Karina's doing the play, starting to clean up. So I figured I'd better tell Karina before she discovered it. But I told Karina. Karina was so angry. So I said, oh, you should do this practice. It's called riding the wave. <laughs> so anyways, it really helped keep the dynamic of our house um, really, really calm. Anyways, story goes on. So the next day, uh, Karina spends the whole day spraying water on the clay, getting it soft again, and then starting to fix it, and she fixed it. And you couldn't even tell it was broken. And then, (laughs) that night, Karina's mom decides that she should clean up that room again. (laughs) I don't know what she was thinking. So this time, she picked up the pot. It's quite big, and she dropped it (gasps) on the floor. And it just, it shattered everywhere. (laughs) So then she came to me, she's like, I broke the pot. I don't know what, <laughs> what I should do. She's like, I think this is really bad. So I said, this is really bad. So then I said to Karina, Karina, remember that practice? <laughs> I laughing away. Forget it. Your mom just dropped the pot. <laughs> Anyways, they didn't speak for 24 hours. <laughs> Everything's good again now. The rest of the day, Karina's mom was coming home with flowers. <laughs> she went She went to the farmer's market, and Cassandra was there, some of you know, and she said to Cassandra, what are Karina's favorite things, you know, brought them all back. And then Cassandra felt so badly, she heard the story, she just gave them to her for free. <laughs> so... Um, There's a wonderful commentary on this section of the text that we're reading by the Dalai Lama. Uh, the name of his commentary is called Healing Anger. And uh, I joked last week, but it's true. I've studied with the Dalai Lama. I've met him. I've you know followed him. And I've never read any of his books. It's the strangest thing. So I, I'm really into the, his books right now. I don't know if anyone here has ever read... Did I mention this last week? But... I don't know if anyone's ever read any books by the Dalai Lama, but they're incredible. It's amazing. (laughs) He's kind of like the Pope of Buddhism. (laughs) Me? Sort of. (laughs) Except he's reincarnated, of course. Uh, So he talks about, in this chapter, he's talking about how anger is like this flowing river really fast. And when it's flowing really fast, you can't control the inflow and you can't control the outflow. But what we really need to touch is the riverbed. It's a bit like a river, he says, which is flowing quite strongly, in which you cannot see the bed of the river clearly. If there was some way you can put an immediate stop to the flow from the direction the water is coming from, and the direction the water is flowing to, 
then you could keep the water still and that would allow you to see the bed quite clearly. Similarly, when you are able to stop your mind from chasing after sensory objects and when you can free your mind from being totally blanked out, you'll begin to see under this turbulence of the thought processes. Right? So he's creating a spectrum. On the one hand, there's, this is attention deficit hyperactivity. Right? On the one hand, there's the mind that's just spaced out. We might even say dissociated. You get this a lot with meditators who don't really want to be in their body. They come into practice and they just space out. I call them bliss bunnies. And then the other side is just constantly going after objects, constantly going after objects, hyperactive. You should try to do this, even though it's very difficult at the initial stage, especially at the outset. Since there's no specific object to focus on, there's always a danger of falling asleep. At the initial stage, when you begin to experience the natural state of consciousness, it will be in the form of some sort of vacuity, an absence, or an emptiness. This is because we're so habituated to understanding our mind in terms of external objects. So we tend to look at the world through our concepts, images, and so on. So when you withdraw your mind from external objects, it's almost as if you can't recognize your mind. Isn't that beautiful? Because you, you always know your mind in relation to names and forms and colors and images, the future, the past. But then, when that's gone, the tendency is just to space out and fall asleep. But if you keep staying with that, you don't recognize your mind. Because it's not the mind you're in all the time. However, as you slowly progress and get used to it, you will begin to see an underlying clarity, a sort of luminosity, and that's when you begin to appreciate and realize the natural state of mind. Isn't that beautiful? That's when you begin to appreciate the natural state of mind. And I I say this all the time, is that... uh, Once you get hooked on practice towards enlightenment, and then you can let go of that paradigm also, what you really start to see in your practice is appreciation. More appreciation for your life. For your woundedness, for the complexity of your family, mothers who drop pottery, more appreciation. So when we practice, our job is to step back, as Dogen says, and turn the light inwards. Not be so focused on objects. And one of the problems with anger, one of the problems with strong emotions, is that it objectifies. And it convinces us that uh, the trouble with what we're experiencing is in the object. Has anyone ever felt like this before? Mm -hmm. So what happens? And how to talk about what happens? He's so clear here. So I was preparing for this talk tonight, and I thought to myself, it's very hard to be a Dharma teacher. I don't have this thought very much, but today I thought, 
it's very hard to be a Dharma teacher. How, how do I convey what happens in practice to all the different kinds of people in the room? Some of you may not have the same experiences that I do. Some of you may have to experience uh, your mind and your difficulties in the way that you do. So I'm just always trying to drop little hints and little trails. But ultimately, the practice is up to you. I can't practice for you. So I can only teach what I practice. These days, I'm just trying to practice everything that Shantideva is talking about. So in chapter 5, he seems to be talking about (coughs) discipline. The word for discipline is virya, which uh, I would translate as enthusiasm. Uh, Discipline maybe is a little tight. Uh, Virya literally means the right kind of effort. And so in my practice, I'm trying to look at this a little bit, is what's the right kind of effort in practice? So for example, when you go to sit on your cushion, what's the right kind of effort? What's the right kind of effort? We all know that if you sit down and you just try and concentrate and not let go, you'll be completely exhausted after 30 minutes or an hour. We know this about Air Force pilots. Air Force pilots, after they fly a sortie, are not allowed to leave the base for between 24 hours and 48 hours because the concentration takes so much energy, it's exhausting. But that's not the kind of concentration. That's not the kind of samadhi that we practice. We come in through the other way, which is to relax. I know that for me, I've had times in my years of practice where I've tried so hard that I've actually had migraine headaches in sitting just from how I was trying to concentrate. And that's why everybody should go on retreat. Because on retreat, when you have bad technique, you have bad technique all day long. Or you have bad technique for three days or four days. And then you really start to see how the technique needs to shift. And I think one of the things we learn in meditation practice that doesn't get talked about that much is that you're actually learning how to monitor yourself. In psychoanalysis, this is called affect regulation. But I think it's more about how do we become wise and take care of ourselves and know how to soothe ourselves and also to be alert at the same time. I went to see a talk by a wonderful psychologist uh, last week. Uh, Mike was there, named Adam Phillips. And he had this one line in the talk that really struck me. He said, we are children for so long. So true, huh? We think of ourselves as adults. Children are those small things on the streetcars. 
But actually, we're children for so long into our adulthood. And I think what happens in meditation practice is if your patterns from childhood are, are uh, patterns where you don't know how to soothe yourself, you don't know how to monitor yourself, then when you come to spiritual practice, you, ha- you develop this kind of like super ego where you, you kind of just take on whatever the paradigm is you're being taught but you don't know how to find your way in it. Maybe you become the type who doesn't know how to ask questions. Or you just take my voice and you turn it into a mix of your father's voice or a sibling. We all do this, right? We kind of sculpt what we're hearing all the time. There are all kinds of studies, you know, some of you might know in attachment theory, where they they put a child in a room until the child's starting to get upset. Um, Maybe the uh, caregiver then comes in right away and soothes the child, and then maybe they kind of leave the child for quite a while, and the caregiver doesn't come in time. And some kids... uh, uh, they uh, get so overwhelmed with their feelings that they can't do anything. They just collapse. And some kids do exactly the opposite. They start doing so much that they actually cover over all of their feelings. And these are, are kind of two basic attachment forms. And there are many others, but these are the two basic ones. One is called feeling, not dealing. And the other is dealing, not feeling. And you see these really show up with people in meditation practice. Because we're children. So I would add to what the Dalai Lama is saying. That you have a spectrum on the one hand spacing out, and on the other hand hyperactivity that's also informed underneath it or flows through the plumbing of our our childhood. So all this is to encourage you uh, when you're practicing to check out your relationship with discipline. Because I think packed inside how we think about discipline is our capacity to monitor ourselves and to soothe ourselves. And I think if we don't look at those patterns, we um, bypass a really important phase of practice. And it's easy to do if you're idealistic or if you're not listening. So, chapter five. Oh, I had one more thing to say about that. Because I was, I was trying to say something about what I'm noticing in my practice. So one thing that I've been noticing is that um, um, when I sit and I'm trying to do something, 
like I'm trying to sit or I'm trying to work on something for my sitting, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And I think like all of us, we're all householders. We all kind of live in this crazy city, you know. And we all have doing mind. I mean, does anybody have too many emails in their inbox? (laughs) So some of you know, Nicole gets the emails from Center of Gravity. She's on email all the time. And then somebody assists me with email named Bronwyn. So Bronwyn told me that for every six hours that she does work for me, which includes like travel schedule and and things like that, she does two hours of returning emails. Two hours of returning emails for every six hours of work. And then on top of that, some of those somehow slip through And I can't believe how many emails I get in a day. So then you can't just switch from that doing mind, returning emails, to sitting. And that's why when people say, is it important if I sit in the morning? I always say, yes. (laughs) Wake up and from that liminal space, sit. Even though you know there might be things on the to-do list but you haven't had a nasty email yet. (laughs) Yet. (laughs) And then you can... You can observe what you're experiencing, but without an observer. So there's observing happening as a process but there's not an observer. There's not this kind of fixed, solid observer observing the experience. But there's just this process of observing. And when there's a process of observing, you can observe from different spaces. You can observe from this mind. Or you can observe, oh, right now, I'm triggered. I'm eight years old. That's a good practice to do, is you ask yourself when you're triggered, how old am I right now? (laughs) So, so far we've looked at four chapters. Uh, First we learned the advantages of generating the mind of bodhicitta, the mind of awakening. Then ways to prepare for practice which were focused on forgiveness and atonement. And in that section, what I said was, instead of defining mindfulness as we are now as scientists, which is paying attention on purpose, let's define mindfulness as forgiveness practice. Because that's actually what it looks like uh, in daily practice. The ability to be generous, the ability to forgive. And then uh, we looked at the chapter on conscientiousness and now discipline. Um, I was reading a commentary today on the beginning of the fifth chapter by Geshe Yesha Tobden. Uh, He died in 1999. He lived in McLeod Ganj, just near where the Dalai Lama lived, Um, studied with the Dalai Lama, and um, 
he wrote a beautiful commentary on this text. Uh, here's what he, he writes. There are thousands, even millions of frightful beings. It's impossible to bind all of them securely. <laughs> what we can do, however, is tame our own minds since by doing so, these enemies will be subdued. Otherwise, everything will be a source of problems. Does everybody know a day like that? Where there's all these frightful beings, they're hanging around, but you haven't recognized it yet? So you just see everything out there as the source of your trouble. Here's Stephen Batchelor's totally different translation. If I overcome thought, this is a line 12. If I overcome thoughts of anger alone, this will be equivalent to vanquishing all foes. Where would I possibly find enough leather with which to cover the surface of the earth? Yet, wearing leather just on the soles of my shoes is equivalent to covering the earth with it. Likewise, it's not possible for me to restrain the external course of everything. But should I restrain this mind of mine, what would be the need to restrain everything else? Although the development of a clear state of concentration can result in taking birth in the realm of Brahma, physical and vocal actions cannot so result when accompanied by weak mental conduct. So even though I might do good things in this lifetime to have a rebirth in the realm of Brahma, more on that another day, um, none of my actions are really helpful unless I have some clarity of mind. Even if recitation and physical hardships are practiced for long periods of time, they will be meaningless if the mind is distracted elsewhere. I think this is a commentary on modern yoga. Practicing the postures, studying the geometry of postures, becoming even uh, a technician of internal and external rotations. <coughs> and at the same time, the mind is elsewhere. Not actually knowing how to bond your attention and your breathing. Not knowing how to enter the space at the bottom of an exhale. So this is, this is something I think we've all experienced. Going through the motions. I've experienced this I've had many meditation retreats when I was younger, especially, where I, I don't know what happened. I wasn't even there. <laughs> I remember one of the first times I ever went on a retreat. Every time the teacher gave a Dharma talk and had a good sentence, it reminded me of a song. And then through the whole next sit, I would just have these pop songs in my head. And then I, I remember thinking... I have so many lyrics in my mind. You know. Anyways, so this section is on the importance of focus. The importance of focus. And it's leading towards the punchline 
a quarter of the way through the chapter that all of this focus is geared towards a life of generosity. doesn't matter what school of Buddhist practice that you explore, they all have the same root, which is that self-importance creates suffering. And the absence of self-importance is generosity. Appreciation. So, two points. One, the natural state of the mind is clear. And when the natural state of the mind is touched, there is a generous spirit there. And number two, that the generosity is not so much the act of giving, but just having in us the default desire of generosity. In other words, you don't have to go around and, and start, you know, giving in that sense. But that the default desire <coughs> in our mind becomes wanting to serve. It's how you get happy. We don't talk a lot about happiness here because you have a melancholic person at the front of the room. You don't have to put that in the blog. <laughs> So, um, if we sum up the first part of this chapter, uh, there are four different practices in the chapter. Oh, by the way, this is a very tricky chapter. It has so much going on in it. And what I'm trying to do is figure out what's going on in it that actually can become a practice, because you can all read the commentaries. Um, But uh, I have handed out a guide that explains... (laughs) how this chapter is organized uh, so that you can uh, refer to it as you're reading the chapter to see how many layers are there. Because it doesn't come through so clearly in the translation. So, four practices. Oh, this is your homework, by the way. Number one. Imagine there are Buddhas around you all the time. This is how you guard your mind. Oh, this is a practice. When you practice, imagine, all day, every day, imagine that all day around you, there are Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, people who want you to be awake. And they're there all the time. Sometimes they're protecting you, Sometimes there are cheerleaders. Give me a B. (laughs) Sometimes they're just holding your hand. A second practice. This one comes from verse 80 in chapter 5, if anybody wants to look it up. Uh, be with others and when you're with others be totally yourself so when you're in a group of people be in a group of people like you are 
when you're alone. And the third practice is when you're alone, be alone and behave like you are when you're with a group of people. Especially this group of people. So when you're alone, how many of you get into most of your trouble when you're alone? (laughs) When you're alone, imagine there are lots of Buddhas around. Or behave like you're with a group of people. And it's referring to a group of people who are practicing. This group of people. I mean, maybe that's one of the things that happens to you when you're in community for a long time, is you internalize it. You start thinking about other people. You internalize that. The last practice... When you are with others, say to yourself, now I'm going to be totally awake. So when you're having relational experiences, which is all the time, sometimes remind yourself, say, I'm going to use this experience to be awake. I'm going to use this moment to be awake. Can you imagine this? You get asked for money. (coughs) I'm going to use this to be awake. To be awake to what shows up in me. To be awake to this other person. To be awake to the condition of our city. Did anybody see the sky today? All day the sky was incredible today. I'm sure it wasn't just me. I mean, the sky was really... So many times a day I said, okay, I'm going to use this to be awake. Um, I can read you that verse, actually. Chapter 5. When beholding someone with my eyes, thinking I shall fully awaken through depending on this being, I should look at that person with love and an open heart. So it's, it's, it's easy just to take this as a slogan, you know. But actually to take that as a practice is really interesting. But when you're with somebody, I'm going to take this opportunity to be awake. Can anybody imagine this? Can you imagine trying this? The enthusiasm is really... (laughs) (laughs) So, what we're doing is we're learning all the places where we trick ourselves where we dig in our heels, where we're mean. Where we're mean to ourselves. Sometimes, you know, I get these Buddhist magazines. Has anybody seen these? (laughs) 
Um, and ev- the issues come, and I say to myself, what is isn't this like the last issue? <laughs> and always the the headline story is about being more loving to yourself. Being more kind to yourself. And I roll my eyes and I think, oh my, what is happening to Buddhism on American soil that the only thing we can turn it into is being kind. And then I, I throw it away. You know. And then I realize, yeah, that's what we really need. That's what I really need. We all need this. When you're hard on yourself, we always identify with the hardness. But in practice, what we're trying to do is switch the place of perception, so that you identify with Buddha nature. So instead of identifying, yes, I'm hard on myself, which is actually, easily slips into, and I'm hard on myself for being hard on myself. We have to say, who is observing the entrapment? So I encourage you, if you suffer from self-judgment, to ask yourself, who is judging right now? Just to shift the locus of awareness so you're just not in the judgmental place identified with it. So then Shantideva says that when you try and practice virtue you'll see how you cause harm. Isn't this so good? Like, If you try and be generous, you'll see how you're stingy. <laughs> it's like right now, one of the things that drives me nuts in... in am I complaining a little bit? I feel like I'm... <laughs> right. I'm sorry. I, I'm not actually getting a lot of sleep, but... <laughs> I'm not even going to say what I was going to say. Okay, I'll say it. (laughs) One of the things that really drives me crazy in the spiritual world these days is all this talk about non-duality. Has anybody heard about this term, non-duality? Makes me crazy. Because all the non-dualists are are dualists. Because they hate the dualists. It's like, I want to be a dualist. Just to give them a hard time. (laughs) It's just a reverse theology. I believe in God. There is no God. And and I know there is no God. Look around. There is no God. But look around. Yes, there is God. Duality, non-duality. But um, actually, to really practice non-duality means that you love duality. Duality is no problem. If you have a non-duality that doesn't like duality, then you're in a lot of trouble. Because every time that you look for oneness, you're always going to find multiplicity. And every time you look for multiplicity, you're always going to find one. It's just the way the mind works. So if you try to be generous, this chapter is saying, 
what you're going to see is your stinginess. And when you see your stinginess, you need to see your stinginess without identifying with the stinginess. So it takes some real courage, I think, for us to really change. Because this is where change gets stuck, I think. Is that you see something that needs to be changed, but then you're seeing it from that fog. Mm -hmm. And you haven't shifted the locus of awareness. And this gives rise to... uh, the six paramitas, which I'm going to just kind of skim today and go through more next week. Um, Shantideva then says, when you, when you practice in this way, it gives rise to the six paramitas, the six perfections. Um, the six perfections are, uh, one, the perfection of generosity, which is the practice of dana the perfection of ethics, which is the practice of sila, the perfection of patience, kshanti, the perfection of joyous effort, or perseverance, virya, the perfection of concentration, dhyana, and the perfection of wisdom, pragna. So these are all practices that reduce ego clinging and also come out of less ego clinging. The ego is displaced. It's like a positive groundlessness. When I was uh, reading um, one of the Tibetan commentaries on this text today, uh, there was this story of this monk who, uh, as a kid, he loved to go to this parade called the Snow Lion Dance where they would make these elaborate uh, Tibetan costumes of snow lions and then they would have this parade which then turned into a dance performance. And he said that as a kid he would watch this uh, dance of the snow lions and they were so beautiful. They were so majestic. And then the dance would start to get aggressive. And then he would become terrified and was alarmed and frightened by all these snow lines. And then he'd go back the next year. And the next year, you know, so you could imagine, right? He's too terrified. It's like kids on Halloween, yeah? And then the next year, he's frightened, but not for as long. And this goes on every year until he's, you know, let's say 10 or 11. And then he talks about how, and then he realizes they're just costumes. They're just costumes. And this was his commentary on this part of the text. We experience certain energies that we're scared of. Or, as I was saying earlier, you experience certain moods or feelings where you don't know how to take care of yourself. You don't know how to soothe yourself. And then, over time with practice, you start to see the empty nature of those emotions. 
how powerful it is to sit in a chair and ride a whole wave of anger. To sit in a chair and ride a whole wave of, um, I don't know, wanting to eat your ninth donut. How do you drop just the concept? Like even right now, if you just even look at the floor, it's hard to see the floor. You see a floor and then you see the overlay. Imagine what it's like with other people. So, um, I'm going to give you two practices this week. Uh, Practice number one, this is your homework. You'll be graded on this. Um, In addition to your daily sit in the morning, you're going to say to yourself, when I am with this person, I'm going to use this as a space and a time to awaken. And we're going to do this with other people all week. So when you're with somebody and there's something, uh, it's good when you're like a bit caught. And you can be caught in all kinds of ways, like just bored. Like maybe you wake up next to the same person every day for 30 years. Does anybody do this? Okay. Yeah. Oh. It's you again. So you wake up next to them, and then you say to yourself, when I am with this person, I'm going to use this as a time and space to awaken. And see what changes. Or maybe there's a colleague at work that is so difficult. It's basic. I can't deal with that. That's why I don't have a job. (laughs) I've done everything I can to avoid colleagues at work. (laughs) And you can say, I'm going to use this experience with this person as a space and a time to awaken. Maybe you've been spending time, I know a few of you, in the hospital with parents who are ill, family members who are ill. And you sit down by their bed and look at them. Not your idea of the ill person. Not your idea that they're dying. Because for them, if they're really in it, they're not dying. They're in their experience. Everybody around them is saying, oh, they're dying. But that's superficial. That's not reaching in. And that kind of empathy is pity. It's not helpful. Well, you can say, I'm going to use this experience to awaken. I had this this week. I have to get knee surgery because I I wrecked my left knee. Uh, Don't snowboard. (laughs) 
And if you do, get the knee surgery. <laughs> Anyways, um, I, I, I've gone in. I, I've gone three times to visit the surgeon. So, the first time, he thought I was someone else. So it took five minutes, and he was looking at the wrong knee. Yeah. So then, uh, this time I went to see him. The second time was fine, no problem. He was really lovely. Then I went to see him, big sports medicine clinic. Then I went to see him this time. And he looked at me, hi, you know, or I'm sorry, he didn't look at me. He just, he came in the door, he's like, hi, how are you? He didn't look at me. And then I said, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. He didn't respond. He works on his iPad, so he's just looking at the iPad. And then he asked me, so what's the coach saying? <laughs> so I didn't say anything. I just thought, oh, I, I didn't really know how to respond. <laughs> So then he said, so are you, still, uh, are you still active? And I said, yeah, you know, I'm practicing yoga still and so on. And then he started asking me about my groins. You know? And so I said to him, do you, do you have the wrong person? I'm Michael Stone. And then he looked down and then he looked at me. So I said, if you came in the door and you just looked at me, if you just took a second and looked at me, then you wouldn't make this mistake. And then I said, but not only that, it's good for you. <laughs> It'd be good for you if you looked at me. And then he apologized. But he apologized like with a big smile. You know, not really. So I've decided not to do my surgery with him. Because I don't know, he might take off a remove. <laughs> You know, some of you, many of you know that there's a surgeon who practices with us, and um, and she said that when she started practicing mindfulness, the biggest change was um, errors. She didn't make so many mistakes, and she doesn't make very many mistakes. But she said it was amazing how the rate of mistakes really uh, dropped. I'm going to stop here. Um, are there any, is there anything anybody wants to say? Comments, questions, phone calls? <laughs> That's okay. Was there a second practice? Oh. Oh, yeah. Uh, practice like there is a Buddha behind you. Wash dishes like there is a Buddha next to you. Sometimes that might mean there's a Buddha there which gives you energy and strength, like courage. Courage, like, I love this practice Michael's talking about, about riding the wave, but I, I mostly just like thinking about it. <laughs> so now it's like, okay, I'm actually going to try this. And I also would say, for those of you who don't have a daily sitting practice, um, the sitting in the chair riding the wave is not going to happen. Because you don't trust yet 
the riverbed. You're still up in the bubbles, explaining your life to yourself, which is just anxiety. It's the low-grade anxiety, just being in storytelling all the time. We need something deeper than that. If you want to know how to give and be generous, especially in a city, then look after your mind. And as we said last week, because then you become somebody who enters situations and de-escalates them. So, any comments or questions before we wrap up? Yes. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts about um, sleeping. Because what I'm finding is that I have a morning practice, and then I have throughout the day, I'm observing the way that that morning practice is kind of building momentum in my Mm -hmm. life. And and then I'm finding that the really interesting moods and, and thoughts and, like, demons are coming up, like, when I'm ready to go to sleep. Yeah. Like, and then I, I get into bed, and that's when that aspect of myself that I'm really curious about looking at in the morning, when I, I wake up in the morning, I'm like, okay, yeah. like, let's see that. Um, it's not it actually, there. It's not there until yeah. I'm so exhausted at night that yeah. then I, you know, and I'm not anxious about, I'm great at falling asleep, yeah. but it's like, right as I'm headed out, yeah. that's when what I want to work on yeah. is starting to show up. So I don't mm-hmm. know if it's, well, then do I get back up and, and you know, well, ride well, the wave until... I mean, for, first of all, <laughs> you don't really have to work on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the whole thing about emotions as composites, as moods as composites, is that they're in conditions. Like, for example, maybe they arrive at night. Mm. Yeah. Like, for example, I worry. Mm. Um, but I only worry at night. I don't ever worry during the daytime. It's only if like, I'm woken up at the wrong time I, I start worrying. But I don't get that ever during the day. And I'm not a kind of worrier. I'm not a worrier. Mm-hmm. But my mom tells me that my DNA will make me a worrier. <laughs> <laughs> when I told her this. She said, it's in both families. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you're sitting, just work with what's there when you're sitting. What's there is everything. And if it's not there, it's nowhere. So when you sit... Um, in the morning, you're developing the skills that you can use so that when the demons are there in the evening, you you have the resource to draw on from the practice. But you don't have to figure them out. Would you say that self-soothing in those cases, I guess where my question is, would you say that self-soothing if, well, let's call it anxiety comes up, mm-hmm. is to go to sleep? Like... It so, can be. Yeah, so it it's not, be. oh, you know, anxiety is here. 
now I need to get up and work with anxiety until anxiety yeah. goes away. Or if it's just like the skill to be able to like, oh, anxiety is here. Yeah. Time to go to sleep. Yeah. Mm. The number one self-soothing method mm. is breathing. <laughs> and the number two self-soothing method is the sane mm. paradigm that we worked with. Being able to stop and not injecting more stories into what you're experiencing. There's demons. We are all scientists. We don't believe in demons. We have no imagination. But actually, anybody here who spends time in the dark, who spends time in the woods, who actually goes on canoe trips, you know at night, you get out of your tent and there's demons. There's demons. There are. You can see them behind trees, certain shadows, light. And there's de- It's not like a far jump, you know. So there are demons and they visit us. And maybe we don't know how to talk to them because our imagination is impoverished because we're scientists. One more comment or question. Cassie, is that you? Um, I really like the way you were talking about making change. Mm. Um, and I kept getting a picture when we were talking about it of um, doing it a different way. You were talking about the beginning of Instead of going at it from the front and trying to work at it, yeah. that you kept with these different focus of uh, perspective. Mm-hmm. It's like you were building a little room for that change to happen. Yeah. I keep seeing this little room that um, you build the room and then you can, from that place, yes. start to take that work apart. Yeah. It's not, um, it's not so. It's not so straight on. Mm-hmm. And the practice as a Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, we are all postmodern people. And one of the things we know in whatever we've studied or how we've been educated is that you can always shift your perspective. You can always shift to another perspective. The problem is we know that intellectually but we suffer from not actually being able to practice that. So that when we keep coming at something from the doing mind, we, we're not in any kind of place of fluidity with our perception. We can't just shift to another perspective. But we have to for change to happen. It happens through the back door. You have to relax. We could spend, I think, more time on that, Cassie. Did you want to say anything else? Okay. So, thank you for listening. Um, I, I feel like maybe next week we need to do some, like, discussing more. So I think next week I'll give a shorter talk and uh, we'll discuss the chapter in more detail now that you have some overview and some practices. That means the introverts won't come. (laughs) (laughs) Let's finish by chanting.